Ephesians chapter 1. We get to start a new book this morning, Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll take verses 1 through 14 this morning. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, as we start here, if you remember, letters back then and these days were different than the letters you would find that you and I would write to someone today. It's very vastly different. First of all, no one even writes a letter these days. You, you usually type it out and you put it on a, in different forms, a chat form, an IM form, or you know, through Facebook, or any, all kinds of electronic means. No one writes a letter these days. They all type it out. But what's interesting is in the current day, we would start off by saying hi or dear such and such and, and addressed you know, someone, and we write the opening paragraph through the body, and then we have a closing comments. But then we end up having some salutation at the end of, you know, in his grip or sincerely yours or very respectfully yours, and you sign it, and you kind of read the letter, you see who wrote it at the end. But back in these days, it was a scroll. The scroll did not have the luxury of being able to easily look at the end of the scroll. So you started, they started their letters off by a greeting, by letting you know who is writing that letter right from the very beginning. In this case, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But then you find that it, it's to who this letter was written to, to the saints who are in Ephesus. But then they always had it then a greeting of, of a sort of, of something of showing of love and showing of, of uh, sincerity to who they're writing to. In this case, we see it's grace to you and peace from God. Now, when we take a look at this opening greetings here from Paul, we have to recognize that many times names mean something, and they do mean something. And in some cases, depending on where you're from and what work environment or, or home or neighborhoods, certain names will be said, and they're very clearly understood who they are. They have name recognition. They have authority within that name. They have position based on that name. So when you say certain names, they mean something and they bring something quickly to your memory and understanding of who is speaking in that letter. And it's no different here in this, this part. Paul, historically, was a, a very identifiable name. His name was originally Saul, if you remember, in Acts 7.58. And since he was from the tribe of Benjamin, it is likely he was named even after the first king of Israel that we see in 1 Samuel 9. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ through God's will or design. If you see this, he made it very clear that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, who he followed, who was his master. We sung that today in our worship time. Uh, who is your master? Who do we follow? And not only who does he follow, but by it's not just the fact that he's following Jesus Christ as, a, an, a, a, as an apostle, of a position that God had called him into, but it's by the will of God that he was in that position. It wasn't something he put himself into that position. I am, Paul, am an apostle. I'm going to make myself an apostle. That's just not how it works. God, by his will, declared a calling upon Paul's life when his life changed. Now remember, Saul of Tarsus was obedient. He was a faithful servant of God as a devoted rabbi. Saul became the leader of the anti-Christian movement in Jerusalem. We see that in Acts 9. And even in the first part of Galatians chapter 1 that we just finished that book in previous weeks. But in the midst of this activity, Saul was arrested. Saul was touched by Jesus Christ and was converted. We see that in Acts chapter 9 verse 3. Here's a man devoted thinking he's doing exactly what God wanted him to do. 
but he understood only what his view. He was leaning on his own understanding. He was not understanding the scriptures and understanding that apply it properly to what God had called, and even in the Old Testament, that the Messiah would come. And he was so fixated and what how that would play out that he missed the Messiah, Jesus Christ Himself. And he actually became a persecutor for those who followed Jesus. Saul of Tarsus. Touched by God on the road to Damascus and was converted, became born again, regenerated. Now he is Paul the Apostle and we see that he becomes Paul the Apostles to the Gentiles here in Ephesus. While he was ministering to the church of Antioch, he was called by the Spirit of God to take the gospel to the Gentiles and he obeyed and we see that in Acts chapter 13 verses 1 through 3. The book of Acts records three missionary journeys. Paul is the poster child, the empirical of evangelical or evangelistic endeavors to reach the Roman Empire. Perfect example in church history of God calling, put in a calling on a man's life. Paul sent him out was willing to go out and change radically the Roman Empire. About the year A.D. 53, Paul first ministered in Ephesus but did not remain there. He stayed there for just a short period and kind of passing through. But two years later, while on his third, third journey, Paul stayed in Ephesus for at least two years and saw that the whole vast area was evangelized. And we see that in Acts 19. During these years, he founded this church, a very strong church in the city of Ephesus. Now, it was nearly 10 years later, as God was using and moving Paul around to do God's work, Paul writes this letter, this epistle to his friends there in Ephesus, and Paul is now finding himself in Rome, in prison. It's one of his uh, prison epistles. And here he is in prison. He's pondering on his friends, his beloved friends, the ones he loved so dearly back in Ephesus, those he ministered to, poured into his life. His life he knew was coming. His life was on trial. It was coming to an end. He was just wanted to write this letter that God was, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was orchestrating him to write and to write down Clearly so that we would have this letter sent to not only to this church, his beloved friends in Ephesus, but this letter was more than likely a circular type letter, which means it was passed from church to church to church to be able to learn and to grow an understanding of what Paul was going to share under the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul wanted to, to share again with these believers the, the great truths of God and the, what the Lord had taught him about Christ and about the church. And now the letter was written from Rome, probably around A.D. 62, uh, somewhere between 61 and 64. But Paul was, was there in this in this, this, this dungeon, and it wasn't focused on him. It wasn't about, oh, woe is me, and how could this have happened, and how could God have allowed this and stuff. No, he didn't wander into the negative what ifs. He sat there and said, God, what could I do to do to help to minister to others and get my eyes off myself? And this is where we get this, this letter, this epistle to the Ephesians. An apostle meaning one sent with a commission. And he was serious about the commission that God had called him to do, and that was is obligated to teach them the word of God and to seek to build them up in the faith. And we will see that later on in Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Now, if you notice here at the second part of verse 1, it, we're kind of a little bit surprised because he says, Paul says right here that he is, Actually, to this, he's writing this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in, in Christ Jesus. It's very clear who he was writing this letter to. And that he wanted the intent of this letter to go around from church to church to speak to believers. 
And because this is a circular uh, type letter, it was for all churches, not just one. He also is applies for us today in our the church today. The letter that was written then is the letter God was going to use today and to will continue forevermore to teach us the things of God and that we need to learn and to be encouraged by in our faith. But here it's interesting. When you say saints, most people immediately in the religious realm will say, wait a minute, who died? A saint has to be dead. Has to be someone who is dead, who achieved these great spiritual giant things that everyone recognizes. And then somehow this committee puts together and comes to an agreement that, yes, this person was a really godly person. And yes, this person is now dead. And we're going to give them this special title called the saint. But if you know the scriptures, you know that doesn't line up with the scriptures. See, no word in the New Testament has suffered and has twisted the word saint more than any other place. Even our dictionary was altered to not line up with the scriptures. Because obviously, the dictionary defines a saint as a person who officially recognized for holiness of life. Who makes this, a, who makes this official recognition of someone's life? Usually it's some religious body who goes through some religious process to identify some religious person who has died and wants to see if they test them to see if they meet all the qualifications under this religious body of this religious process to see if they can canonize them. The deceased person's life is so examined by people to see if they, he or she it qualifies for sainthood. And if the candidate's character and conduct um, are found to be above reproach and or he or she has been responsible for working at least two miracles, then they qualify to be made a saint by the church. But what's interesting is as a religious procedure, as a process is taking place, we do not find it authorized in the Bible anywhere. Even in this letter alone, Paul uses the, and uses the word saints nine times in this brief letter. Paul, he, he, he dresses his readers as saints. And these saints are alive. They're not dead. The ones they were, they were certainly were dead once in dead in their trespasses and sins. We see that in, the, in Ephesians 2, we'll see. But it is clear that they have never performed any miracles Though they had experienced the tremendous miracle just like you I, and you and I have, and that is we've experienced a miracle by trusting Christ as our Savior, and we were saved. Hallelujah. Because that is the miracle. We have been given life based on putting our trust, our faith, into what Jesus Christ did on the cross, paid the penalty of our sins, and rose again and intercedes for you and I today. What a miracle. You and I are called saints. You and I are alive. Yes, we were once dead in our trespasses, but we have been made alive in Christ. And because of that, that is the only miracle that we can claim. And that is because of the work of God did in our life. Now, The word saint is simply one of used of many terms to describe in the New Testament one or you or I who has trusted Jesus Christ as a, as a savior. A person is alive not only physically but also spiritually. We see that we find Christians are called disciples in Acts chapter 9, 10, 19, throughout Acts, we see that Christians are referred to as disciples as well. We also see that saints or, 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 or Christians are also referred to as people of the way, Acts 9, 2. We use that, uh, the way as our, our, uh, our, our name of other radio station, the way, the way radio, because we understand it was a people of, 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 of believers that uh, in those days, and it was just a great fit for us to do God had showed us to do for the naming of the radio station. But we also see that saints also is a term used for Christians in the scripture. 
The word saint means to one who has been set apart. It's, it, it's related to the word of sanct, sanctified or the sanctification, which was set apart. It is a work that is being set apart by the work of God. And when the sinner trusts Christ as his Savior, he is taken out of the world and placed in Christ. Yes, the believer is in the world physically, but not of the world spiritually. We see that in John 17, verses 14 through 16. And I equate it to back in my days when, um, you know, when Kathleen and I first met, we, we decided that, or maybe more I decided and forced her probably to, <laughs> to convince her. And she's, of course, she's, you know, she's, uh, she's oh, of course I want to be with you and hang with you. I'll go take scuba diving lessons. But anyway, like a scuba diver, we exist under the water that is not natural for us as human beings to be under the water and to be able to breathe. We're not able to hold our breath that long and to live under that environment. But it's an alien environment for us. It, but because we have a possession of a special equipment that allows us to breathe and the oxygen and the apparatus and in this case, it's the same for us. The indwelling Holy Spirit of God indwells within us. We possess the Holy Spirit that allows us and gives us the ability to live in function in this world that we live in today. Every true believer possesses the Holy Spirit when you get saved. And it's through the Spirit's power that allows us who does not, this is not our home, heaven is our home, but as a Christian, to be able to function within this world, we must have the Holy Spirit to be able to function. Paul uses the phrase, in Christ Jesus, and it's used 27 times in this letter. But it describes the spiritual position of the believer. He is identified with Christ. He is in Christ. And therefore, he's able to draw on the wealth or the spiritual blessings of Christ for his own daily living. Now, in verse 2, God uses Paul to describe the blessing that comes from or what we receive in this as saints or believers in Jesus Christ by faith. That grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Twelve times in Ephesians, Paul uses the word grace, charis. It means the kindness of God toward an undeserving people. Unmerited favor. God does something for us that we do not deserve. You cannot earn, but out of his love... His love for you, for me, he gives us something that we do not deserve. And that grace and peace, peace from God, are always often found together. But when they are found together in the Bible, they belong in that order. Because until you have the grace of God, the salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. That grace is bestowed upon you. Followed by, that is when you can have the peace of God. You cannot have a peace of God apart from the salvation from God. So, we understand as Paul, in his initial greeting here, that he is speaking to those he loves. The Holy Spirit is speaking to those he loves, and he speaks to us today as he outlines over the next Several verses here, spiritual blessings upon those who are children of God. We see in verse 3, blessed be the God and, the, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God is to be praised. Because of the spiritual blessing he has planned for believers in Christ. Every book of the Bible has an understanding of what is the main theme of that, of that book. 
It's a special theme. It's, it has a special message. And even though it deals with several topics in different books, it, there's an overall theme. It's like Genesis is the book of beginnings. Matthew is the book of the kingdom. Galatians, we just finished it, is the book of liberty. Here in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we see the theme of this book or this letter is that the Christian spiritual blessings in Christ. What kind or where do these blessings come from? Well, we see here in verse 3, the source of, the, of our blessings, spiritual blessings, Paul says right here, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father has made us rich in Jesus Christ. When you were born again into God's family, you were born rich. You shall receive the riches of God's grace. You will receive the riches of God's glory. You will receive the riches of God's mercy. You will receive the, the riches of the unsearchable riches of Christ, our Heavenly Father, is not poor. He is rich. And He has made us rich in His Son. Not only is the source from God, but think of the scale of the blessings. How much of spiritual blessings? What's the scope of our blessings? We have all spiritual blessings, Paul annotates. All spiritual blessings. All the blessings that the Spirit of God is going to work in and through you, your life. It's interesting, we see in the Old Testament, God promised his earthly people, Israel, blessings or material blessings as a reward for their obedience. We see that in Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 13. But today, God promises to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, 19. He does not promise to shield us from, uh, from poverty in this world or, or from the pain that can come from being in this world. But the Father has given us every blessing of the Spirit. Everything we need for a successful, satisfying, content Christian life, God can supply to us. The Spirit is so much more important than the material or the physical in our life. And so how why one so, so more important to, to be spending time on the spiritual not on the material, not on the physical life, but on the, on, the, on the spiritual. That is where our focus needs to be. The Holy Spirit is mentioned many times throughout the letter because he is the one who channels our riches, moves in our lives the, the, the spiritual blessings to us from the Father through the Son. Not to know or to depend on the Holy Spirit's provision is to live a life spiritual poverty. We must rely upon the Holy Spirit in our life to be working in and through uh, what God the Father has for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul began his Ephesian ministry by, by interacting with the Christians wanting to see and know if the Holy Spirit is working and in their lives. We might even, even ask a, a Christian today, Do you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And if they said, no, I didn't receive the Spirit, I wasn't changed by the Spirit, then, then you're not saved. And so if the man has not Receive the Spirit of Christ, He is not His, it says in Romans 8 9. And unless you and I have the witness of the Spirit in our life, you cannot draw on the spiritual blessings or the wealth of the Spirit that God has for you. Not only do we 
we see in verse 3 that certainly the scope that we can, the source we can draw upon or the scale of the blessing that we have. But look at the, the, the how widespread the sphere of our blessing reaches. It says right here, our blessings are in the heavenly places in Christ. In the heavenlies in Christ. Remember, the unsaved person is interested primarily in earthly things. Their focus is on what they can get from this world, from this earth. What's going to benefit them now? How are they going to live more comfortably? How are they going to live more richly? How are they going to live all these things? Because this is, wh is where their lies are. This is where their focus is. Jesus even called them the children of this world in Luke 16, 8. But you and I, as the Christian's life, is centered in heaven, not in this earth. Our citizenship, remember, is now in heaven, Philippians 3.20. His, his name is written in heaven. His Father is in heaven. Our, his attention, our affection ought to be centered, focused primarily on the things of heaven, Colossians 3.1. You as a Christian and I living here in this world today, we operate in two spheres. We've, got the, we've certainly got the human aspect we have to deal with, but we also have the divine. Visib visibly, we live here in this body on this earth. But invisibly, our spirit is from heaven. We have a heavenly perspective. Physically, we're here, this human body. But spiritually, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly sphere. And it is from this heavenly sphere, from this heavenly view, that's what provides the power and the direction for the earthly walk. No matter, no matter where we find ourselves as a Christian, no matter where we are and may be on this earth, we are seated in the heavenly with Christ Jesus. And this is the basis of our life. This is the power of our life. This is our perspective of our life, is to have a heavenly perspective while we're living in this body on this earth. We do not have a worldly perspective because that would just be all wrong because we're now a child of God. We need our, a heavenly perspective of how to live this life into eternity. The fact that Paul is writing about wealth is really interesting because he understood he was right there in the center of the, the Bank of Asia, the Asian Minor. This is the place that was a happening place. This is where everything revolved around. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. The great temple of Diana was in Ephesus. Was it not only a center of idolatrous worship, but it was also a world trade center for wealth. And Paul is saying to the people there, your riches, your spiritual blessings are not of this world, but is of heaven. Don't put your eyes on idolatrous worship on this earth. Do not put your eyes on the world trade of wealth. That is not, as a child of God, that is not where the spiritual blessings come from. Now, Paul continues here in our verses as he discusses believer's spiritual blessings by showing that they are based on the work of God. The work of God of the three persons of the Trinity that we see will line out very clearly for us in these verses. We'll see how God has, has is selected us, has, has, is, is, is working in our lives, verses 4 through 6. We will see that God, the Son of God, is, 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 is going to sacrifice for our lives in verses 7 through 12. And then we'll see the, the, uh, the God, the Holy Spirit, will be sealing us of the Spirit in verses 13 and 14. So here in verses 4 through 6, follow along. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So we see here the spiritual blessings from God the Father, 
We see here in verse 4 that he has chosen us. And this is that marvelous, interesting doctrine of election. The doctrine that has confused so many and has confounded so many others. It has always been explained to me and I've always have read it and seen it somewhere where it says, you try to explain election and you may lose your mind. <laughs> but try to explain it away and you may lose your soul. We have to understand God sees all things. He knows all things. He's ever, he's omniscient. He's all power. He, God cannot be taught anything new. He knows all things from the beginning to end. You must have that as a foundation of understanding of that truth. And then from there, you must under then understand salvation begins with God and not with man. All Christians will agree. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And that's clear in John 15, 16. The, the lost sinner left to his own ways does not seek God. Romans 3, 10 and 11. And God in his love seeks that lost sinner. And we see in Luke 19, 10. God has chosen, has created you to have a relationship with him. And he will pursue you and pursue you because of that love. Even as a lost sinner, he goes out of his way to seek after you because he knows that if you are left to your own ways, like a child, if you do not help that child to understand who God is, that child, that adult, left to his own ways, will not seek after God, does not want the things of God, and will go astray and continue to be lost as a sinner. But God in his love seeks the sinner. We must always remember God loves the sinner. And wants to change his or her life. Now note that God chose us even before he created the universe. So that our salvation is wholly based upon his grace, his unmerited favor, his grace. And not on the basis of anything we ourselves have done or could ever do. He chose us in Christ. Not in ourselves and our abilities, but chose us in Christ and what Jesus was going to do for us. He chose us for a purpose. And that says right here in the scriptures, he chose us to be holy and without blame. Now in the Bible, election is always unto something. Does the sinner respond to God's grace Against his own will? No. He responds because of God's grace allows and makes him willing to respond to God. See, the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It's one and the other on the side of the same coin. The mystery of the divine sovereignty and human responsibility will never be solved in, in this life. Both are taught in the Bible. Both are true and both are essential. Did God save us? Yes. Does, does man have a responsibility to choose God? Yes. The answer is yes to both and both are true. You will note that all three persons of, in the Godhead are involved in our salvation. As far as God the Father is concerned, you were saved when he chose you in Christ in eternity past. But that alone does not, did not save you. As far as God the Son is concerned, you were saved when he died for you on the cross. 
and as far as God the Spirit is concerned, you were saved when you yielded to his conviction and received Jesus Christ as your Savior. It began in eternity past. It was fulfilled in time past, and it will continue for all eternity. So spiritual blessings from God the Father. He has chosen us. But we also see in these verses that he also has adopted us, we see in verse 5. Here we meet that misunderstanding word of predestination. One of the other words that people get so confused with and uses it so loosely. This word as it is used in the Bible, refers primarily to what God does for saved people. Nowhere in the Bible are we taught that people are predestined to hell. Because this word refers only to God's people. The word simply means God has ordained beforehand or pre or to predetermine something for his people that are saved. Election seems to refer to the people itself, whereas predestined refers to the purposes for his people. The events connected with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was predestined. God the Father predestined that his son would go and be crucified on the cross. That was predestined. God had predestined our adoption. Those who put their trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross will be adopted. That was predestined. Our conformity to Christ that we see in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, was predestined. When we give our life to Christ, we would be predestined to be conformed to in the image of Jesus Christ. As well as our future inheritance, everything that would be before us, would was predestined to those who were going to give their life to Christ by faith. So we see very clearly that, yes, we're chosen. Yes, we have been adopted into God's family. You just don't get into God's family by adoption. You get into his family by being regenerated, having a new, a new birth, being born again, as we see in John 3, verses 1 through 18, or 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. The adoption is the act of God by which he gives his born ones, his, those who are born again, an adult standing in his family. See, remember, as a baby, a, a young baby can't legally uh, inherit anything. It's just too young to understand and too young to do with the, what uh, that was given to them. But God, who takes a person who's born again and brings them in as an adult standing in the family, so that he could, you and I could immediately begin to claim our inheritance or enjoy our spiritual blessing that God has for us. It means you and I don't have to wait until you become some old, crepid saint to be able to enjoy the blessings and the riches that God has in Christ. We immediately, when we're saved, can start receiving the spiritual blessings of our inheritance because it was predestined for us. It was already put in place. It was automatically going to go into action. You don't have to wait for some age, certain age or being a Christian certain, a certain length of time before they open up the lawyer opens up the letter and starts reading what your inheritance is going to be. So many people will sit there and say, well, I've only been a Christian for one day. Praise the Lord. What is God? How has God blessed you already? Because your inheritance is already going to start being paid out and his riches for you, his blessings. Everything you need for life will be fulfilled from right to the beginning of when you were born again. You don't have to wait and be a Christian for a certain amount of years before you expect God's blessings or from your inheritance as being adopted in the family. That's crazy. But not only he's adopted, but we see in verse 6 that he has accepted us. <laughs> you know how many times people have never feel accepted? They're never good enough? 
They're never perfect enough. They can't meet the standards. They can't meet the bar that's been set for them. But God says he has accepted us in verse 6. We cannot make ourselves acceptable, God. We can't do it. We can't earn it. We can't jump high enough. We can't run fast enough. We are not going to do anything to be able to be accepted, be acceptable to God. But he, God himself, by his grace, makes us accepted in Christ. And it's because of God's grace in Christ, we are accepted before God Almighty himself. Paul writes to Philemon. In chapter 17, 17 and 19, the verses there, um, to encourage him to accept his runaway slave, Onesimus. And, and it's the same argument here. He uses the same argument that God outlines for us today. That if, if he, he Paul is you know, saying to, you know, to Philemon, if Onesimus has done anything, he owes you anything, I will pay it. Just receive him as you would receive me. God paid it all. Paul is saying, I will pay it all, whatever it is. Just receive him. And that's what the God the Father said he would do. Now in verses 7 through 12, we see that the sacrifice of the Son, the, 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 the spiritual blessings that come from God the Son. He says, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of of his will according to his good pleasure, which he proposed or he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So we see the second, the Godhead of the, the, of the Son, God the Son here, who is who sacrificed for you and I. We we should not think that each person of the Godhead works independently. Don't get, don't get me wrong here. Because they all work together to make possible our salvation. They're in unity. It's one God working together in three persons. And each person of the Godhead has a special ministry to perform. A special spiritual deposit or contribution to make in our lives. And we see here the God the Son contributes and deposits into our life by doing by redeeming us. He has redeemed us here in the first part of verse 7 we see. To redeem means to, to purchase, to set free by paying a price. And Paul's words here being used by saying that he, to these people, you've been redeemed, you've been purchased. They would understand this. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at that time. Often they were bought and sold like cattle. But at times, a man who was about to be sold and purchased as a slave, a man was whole purpose was to purchase that slave to then turn around to set them free. And this is what Jesus did for you and I. The price to set you, to set me free, the price was his own blood. This means that we are free from the law. We learned that in Galatians chapter 5. We're free from slavery to sin, our sin, and we were a slave to it. We're in bondage. He used his, 
bought our lives with the, his blood to, to free us from that slavery to sin. We see that in Romans 6. As well as we're free from the power of Satan in the world and how the Satan in the world will just pull us down and put us into bondage. We read that and studied that in Galatians 1, 4 and Colossians 1, 13 and 14. And when we were slaves, we would be poor. But because we are now sons and daughters of the Most High, we are rich. Because the Son of God redeemed us, purchased our lives. But not only did he just purchase us, he has forgiven us. The second part of verse 7 there. The word forgiven means to carry away. It reminds me of the ritual of the Jewish Day of Atonement. When the high priest sent the scapegoat into the wilderness, Leviticus 16. The priest would come, he would take two goats, he would slay one, sprinkle the, it, it, its blood before God on the, on the mercy seat, and then he confessed the, all of Israel's sins over that live goat and had that goat taken into the wilderness to be lost. That's what Christ did in his death did for you and I. Christ died to carry away our sins so they may never be seen again. No written accusation stands against us any longer. No longer is it a, uh, we're, we're no longer our poster, sinful poster child of who we were is no longer anywhere in our hometown or any place where we live today. It's not anywhere to be found. Because our sins have been taken away by God himself. Sin made us poor. Sin made us a destitute. Had us lost and blind and could not see and wandered wilderness in the darkness. But God's grace makes us rich. Makes us see clearly. God has taken the sin of the world he has taken your sin that he died for you on that cross. And he's taken that sin, your sin, and he has carried it away no longer to ever to be seen or speak of again. That is amazing grace. Not only has he redeemed us, not only has he not only forgiven us, but we see here in our verses 8 through 10, he has revealed God's will to us. This letter has so much to say about God's plan for his people. It's why it is my favorite book. I don't know if I told you, but the book of Ephesians is my favorite book. And God has a plan that will was not fully understood even in Paul's day. And he refers to the word mystery has nothing to do with some scary, eerie feeling kind of thing. But it means a sacred secret, once hidden but now revealed to God's people. I love the fact that God has brought us into his inner circle. Every family, we all, we have those who are associating and around about and people come and go out of your lives and your family life, but there's a few that are in the inner circle of the family that knows the mystery of what happens within the family. <laughs> and we were able to share in the secret that God will one day unite everything in Christ. See, back then, Paul, they didn't understand that God was bringing about Together, this unity and oneness in, of everything in Christ. Remember, everything in the Garden of Eden from the very the beginning of time was in unity and oneness with God. And then sin came into the camp, into the garden. And once the sin came into the world, things start falling apart. First man was separated from God, we saw in Genesis 3. 
Then man was separated from man when we saw Cain killing, had killed Abel in Genesis 4. And then people then tried to take the thing on their own and figure it out and lean on their own understanding and do it their own way. And people tried to maintain a kind of unity by building the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. But God judged them and scattered them across the world. God called Abraham and put a difference between the Jew and the Gentile. A difference that was maintained until Christ died on the cross, and when he died on the cross, it was finished. Sin that was tearing everything apart. But now in Christ, God will gather everything together and, and bring it together in his timing, in his way. The culmination of the ages will come back together, and we are a part of this great eternal plan and program. But we also see the Son of the, the, God of God the Son. We see also that not only did He redeem, redeemed us, He's forgiven us, He's revealed God's will for us, but He has made us an inheritance in verse 11 and 12. We have a wonderful inheritance as a child of God. We have that inheritance in Christ. But in Christ, we are an inheritance as well. We are valuable to him. Think of the price that God paid to purchase us and make us part of his inheritance. God the Son is the Father's love gift to us. And we are the Father's love gift to his Son. Go and read John chapter 17 today. Know how many times Christ calls us those whom you have given me. It's an inheritance. We're a blessing to God. The church is Christ's body. His building. His, his bride. Christ's future inheritance is all wrapped up in his church. And we see in Romans 8, 17, we are joint heirs with Christ. Which means Christ does not claim his inheritance apart from us. That is amazing grace. That is, that is a tremendous spiritual blessing that you and I have. And I don't even believe we fully understand what it means to have be co-joint uh, heirs with our Savior. Then we see the second part here, or the third part, the blessings from the God of the Holy Spirit, verses 13 and 14. God's spiritual blessings come also from the third Godhead, which is the Holy Spirit. And we read it here in verses 13 and 14. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So we see sovereignty of election of the Father and the redemption work, the size of God, but the of the Holy Spirit. That's a tremendous spiritual blessing that we're given here in verse 13, that he is going to seal us. We're sealed us. The entire process of salvation is given in this verse. You, we could study this verse all in just one Sunday verse, one Sunday uh, topic is just on this verse alone because it outlines the entire process of salvation right in front. It tells us how the sinner became a saint. He hears the gospel of salvation. A person hears the gospel of salvation. He hears that G, the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again. We hear that. And give it an opportunity to believe that by faith. And it's, it is, that is offered to every single human being from the past, present, and future. Remember, the Ephesians were Gentiles. The gospel came to the Jews first, we know in Romans 1.16. But Paul, a Jew, was brought the gospel to these Gentiles... 
and he shared the word of God with them. And according to the call and the will of God, on Paul's saved life. God used that for a purpose to reach these people. These Ephesians heard the gospel, discovered it was for them, their salvation. They could have salvation in Jesus Christ by faith. And even though the Bible teaches election, it also announces to us all that we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, Mark 16, 15. And as a soul winner, as a believer, we don't go out into the world to the all the unsaved people and talk about election because it is a family secret that belongs to the saints only. He simply announces the truth of the gospel, invites men and women to trust Christ, the Messiah, what he did on the cross for them, and then the Holy Spirit does the rest. He will then seal them for eternity, for God's pleasure and purpose. The same God who ordains the end, the salvation of souls, also ordains the means to the end. And those means is by the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we are to be equipped to go out and allow the Holy Spirit to work through our lives, to reach the lost, to share the good news, because that is God's purpose for you and I while we're on this earth, in these bodies. And if we're not going out there, and we're not sharing the good news, and living as, 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 child, as children of God, then we're missing out of what God's plan is and the power and those spiritual blessing through the power of the God of the Holy Spirit working through our lives to share the gospel to this lost and dying world. They need to hear the good news. And having heard the good news, the Ephesians believed. And it is this faith that brought salvation to them. It's that same faith that brought us to salvation and it will be that same faith in that same way by hearing of the word of God the good news that will save someone tomorrow this pattern follows what Paul writes and even in Romans chapter 10 the, that passage carefully outlines it's God's plan for evangelism when Ephesians believed they were sealed with the spirit of God this pattern follows what Paul writes in Romans chapter 10. It is God's plan for evangelism. We believe, and when we, you believe, you were then sealed with the Holy Spirit. You receive the Spirit immediately on trusting Christ. This is not an experience following conversion. It is you, believe, you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you believed in Jesus Christ, and immediately the Spirit of God seals you for eternity. So what is the significance? Very clearly, very quickly, for one thing, it speaks of a finished transaction. Even today, important legal documents are processed, they are stamped with the official seal to signify the completion of that transaction, it's been notarized, it's been verified. Completion. It also, the sealing also implies ownership. God has put his seal on us because he has purchased us to be his own, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. It also means security and protection. We're sealed for eternity. We will not lose your salvation. You are secured and protected. The Roman seal on the tomb of Jesus even carried this meaning. The believer belongs to God and is safe and protected because he is a part of the finished transaction. It is finished. And according to John 14, 16 through 17, the Holy Spirit abides with the believer forever. And it is possible for us to grieve the spirit, thereby lose the blessings of his ministry, of his ministry but he doesn't leave us. We're a child of but also marks us with authenticity. Just like a signature, just like the seal, 
It shows that this is a genuineness of doctrine. The presence of the Spirit proves the believer is genuine, that the believer is saved. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. It's not simply our some lip talk or some religious activity or any massive proof of our good works, but it's the witness of the Holy Spirit that makes it makes our profession authentic. Not only that, he also has given us a guarantee, verse, uh, verse 14. A guaranteed down payment that a final purchase would be coming, and that is the fact that God was going to come back for his children. It's like real estate. Another a word that's used is earnest money. Is when you're looking to a real estate agent and talks about what money do you have to put down as a guarantee of payments? You need to show some earnest money that you're, this is, you, this is, you're going to be able to, be able to buy this, this, this real estate. God has sent the Holy Spirit is God's first installment to guarantee to his children that he will finish his work and eventually bring him to glory. So he says here, the redemption of the purchased possession. It refers to the redemption of the body at the return of Christ. Redemption is experienced in three stages that we see. We see in verse 7, we have been redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ. The second stage is we have been, we are, we are being redeemed as the Spirit works in our lives to make us more like Christ. We even see that in Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. And then we shall be redeemed when Christ returns and we become like him. And this is the believer's ultimate and final release from the presence of sin of this world. Guaranteed. It's like an engagement ring. A man gives an engagement ring to the woman as an assurance, a guarantee, a promise that he is making to her that he is coming back to bring her to be his bride. And our relationship to God through Christ is not simply a commercial, man-made, worldly one, but also a personal experience of love. He is the bridegroom and his church is the bride. We know that he will come and claim his bride because he has given us his promise. He has given us his Holy Spirit. The, his spirit as the engagement ring to come back and to claim his bride. What greater assurance can you have than this? Today, we looked at some solid and important biblical doctrines, and, it's, and it, it all revolves around the spiritual blessings in Christ. We must understand that true riches come from God and God alone. He is the great source of encouragement to know that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all working on my behalf to make me rich. Spiritual blessings, a fullness of life while I live on this world. God not only gives us richly all things to enjoy that we see in 1 Timothy 6.17, but he gives us eternal riches without which all, anything else of things that we think are valuable, they're just valueless. They're just, there's nothing compared to his eternal riches, compares nothing of what this world can offer. But not only is true riches come from God, but all these riches come by God's grace and for God's glory. Did you notice how how Paul ends 
three key areas. All three key sections. Why has God the Father chosen us, adopted us, accepted us? To the praise of the glory of his grace, verse 6. Why has the Son redeemed us, forgiven us, revealed God's will to us, made us a part of God's inheritance? So that we should be to the praise of his glory, verse 12. And why has God the Spirit sealed us and become the guarantee of our future blessing? But to the praise of his glory, verse 14. We often have the idea that God saves sinners because he has pity on us. Or he just he wants just to rescue us because of his love to rescue us from eternal judgment. But God's main purpose is that he might be glorified. His creation reveals his wisdom and power, we see. His church reveals his love and grace. You and I cannot deserve or earn any spiritual blessings. You and I can only receive them by grace through faith. And these riches are only the beginning, we see. This is, just, this is just minor compared to what all that we are going to see. All the spiritual wealth to claim from the Lord as we walk with him now. The Bible is our guide. It is, 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 is reveals to us clearly. The Holy Spirit is our teacher of that. He, the Holy Spirit reveals to us from the scriptures we can go and search deeper and deeper into the word of God and we'll discover more and more spiritual blessings. We'll never come to an end. And all of these spiritual blessings were planned by the Father, purchased by the Son, and revealed by the Spirit. Amazing grace. Let us pray.